Acts 9.31, Dr. Luke writes for us, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. For the past 18 months, I believe, I don't know if you uh, are on the same page with me or not, but the past 18 months have revealed a lot to me about myself. I think the past 18 months have revealed a lot to us about our society, our culture, our church culture, our American evangelical church culture. There's lots of revelations, but I think one of them is that we are fearful people. Perhaps we had an unhealthy fear of the virus. Perhaps we had an unhealthy fear of government overreach. Perhaps we had an unhealthy fear of what others might think of us. Perhaps we had an unhealthy fear of fill in the blank. We're fearful people. We're a society driven by fear. We have a political world that preys on fear. But for the Christian, there is a fear that drives out other fears, and that is the fear of God. And it's very easy, so easy, to think of that phrase, the fear of God, as something that's really just an Old Testament idea. Oh, that was for Israel. I don't live in Israel. I'm a Gentile. I don't think I have to worry too much about it. But we find it in the New Testament as well. And indeed, there are four specific instances in the New Testament where we are commanded to fear God. And we just read Acts 9.31, which if you know the flow of Acts, you know that that is after the events of Pentecost. The gospel is beginning to spread according to how Jesus said it would in Acts 1.8. It's also after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is happening during what we would call the New Covenant. And you notice how Luke described the walk of the church. They walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So one observation we have is that the fear of the Lord then, the fear of God is not just an Old Testament reality. The fear of God does not describe just the walk, the lifestyle of Old Testament saints. It also describes the lifestyle of all believers for all time. That includes you, and that includes me. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter, commands his readers in 1 Peter 2.17 to fear God. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. It's a command. And earlier in the same letter, he wrote, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The fear of God is a reality for New Covenant Christians, which is another way to say the fear of God is a reality for us. A Christian is one who fears God. One author listed five traits about the person who fears God. He said they are submissive to God, they obey God, they are conscious of God's continual presence. They are conscious of their ongoing dependence on God that is primarily expressed through prayer, and they live all of life to the glory of God. As you listen to that, you might just think, 
that's just a Christian. And you'd be right. That is a Christian because a Christian is one who fears God. But that naturally, most likely, leads to a host of questions. What does it mean to fear God? How do I come to fear God? Is fearing God the same as being afraid of God? How does the fear of God affect my life? How do I grow and develop this fear? And who is this God I am to fear? And over the next few weeks, we will listen in as Scripture answers these questions for us, but we begin with the object of our fear, God. Who is this God we are to fear? If we are going to fear God in a way that honors Him, in a way that pleases Him, in a way that glorifies Him, we must know who He is. It's essential, imperative. So with that question in mind, we will turn our attention now to Exodus 34, where God defines Himself. So we'll read the passage, then we'll pray one more time, and we will... Listen as God defines himself. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourselves there, yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Holy Spirit, we come once again, and we ask that you would incline our minds incline our hearts to the glory of God revealed in this passage. Open our eyes that we might see God's glory. Unite our hearts to Christ's heart that we might fear God's name. Satisfy us this morning with this glorious God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Or earlier in Exodus... You'll recall Moses was on the mountain receiving the law directly from God. And we get to Exodus 32 and we see that the people, they grew tired. They didn't know what happened to Moses. 
They thought perhaps Moses was lingering, taking a little bit too much time. So they tell Aaron, Aaron, make us a god. Make us a god like where we came from so that we might worship it. Aaron does it. One of my favorite uh, stories in the Bible, Moses comes down the mountain. God tells him the people have corrupted themselves. Moses comes down. He throws down the stone tablets and he breaks them. And he basically says, Aaron, what's up? And Aaron says, well, they gave me this jewelry and I threw it in the fire and bada bing, here came this golden calf. It just came out. There were consequences to this. God tells Moses, I'm not going with this people. Moses, you lead them. I'm out. I'll go with you. I'll go with you, Moses, but I'm not going to be among these people. And Moses rightly knew that God's presence with his people is one of their distinguishing marks. That was so important. So Moses earnestly intercedes with God on behalf of the people. And we, we read that God did say, I will go with the people. I will be present. And what always blows my mind about Exodus 32, 33, and 34 is that God told Moses so many astounding things. He said, I, I know you, Moses. I'm with you, Moses. But yet Moses still responds and says, God, show me your glory. Just breathtaking to me. Moses was not content. God, show me your glory. I know you know me and I know you're with me, but I want to see your glory. I want to see the glory of God. Well, Moses asks, asks that in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Moses said, please show me your glory. And in verse 19, we see God's response. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God says yes. God would reveal his glory to Moses. And as he does so, God defines himself not only for Moses, but for us today as we read the passage. And you notice, God wanted Moses to come up in the next morning, on the next morning. I wonder how Moses slept that night. You ever thought about that? How about that this week? How do you think he slept? I just imagine the anticipation. Remember the night before our wedding? I didn't sleep a lick. It was awful. I don't know how it's pure adrenaline that you even make it through that day, period. But without any sleep, it's definitely pure adrenaline. I can't even imagine how Moses slept. Oh, God's going to show me his glory tomorrow morning. Oh, man. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how he slept. I tell you he slept like a baby, but we all know that's not good sleep. So Moses goes to bed. Goes up the mountain the next morning. 
And the first thing we see is that while he's on the mountain, God defines himself first by his actions. God defines himself by his action. Verse, verses 4 and 5. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So Moses, Moses goes up the mountain. What does God do? God descends. God descends. And you notice, as we read earlier, God tells Moses in verse 2, come to the top of the mountain. Come to the top of the mountain. Mount Sinai is some 7,497 feet above sea level. I don't know much about mountains. That seems high. The pinnacles, by comparison, are 1,500 feet in elevation. And I know that's a hike and a half for me. So here goes Moses up the mountain to the top, but God still has to descend. The Lord descends in the clouds. So we learn at least two important truths here. First, God is transcendent. The highest heavens cannot contain him. He's above us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The second truth we learn is that if God is going to come to meet with his people, he must come down to us. God must come down to us. We cannot go up to him to meet with him. I mean, Moses went to the top of the mountain. It's, maybe that's simple when you guys read that and you're like, well, of course he did. But it's like God still had to come down. Still had to come down. And if the mountain would have been even higher, God still would have had to come down. God is a God who comes down to meet with his people. And this word descended also teaches us about who God is. Uh, throughout the whole Old Testament, we read phrases such as God descends or God comes down. And if you were to go home and uh, fire up a Bible study software program or get your concordance and do a little homework on those phrases, you would learn that one of two things normally happens when God comes down or God descends. He either speaks or he reveals his glory. So God is a speaking God and God is a God who reveals his glory. In Exodus 33, we read, The pillar of cloud would descend, and the Lord would speak to Moses. Numbers 11, verse 17, this is God talking, I will come down and talk with you. Numbers 11, 25, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And this is a New Testament reality too. Not to mention just the incarnation of Jesus, the incarnate word. But Luke records statements like these from the Old Testament twice at Jesus' baptism. We read, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. At Jesus' transfiguration, we read, A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my chosen one. Listen to him. But not only does God speak when he descends, he reveals his glory. One example, 1 Kings 8, this is the dedication of the temple. 
we read, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So when God descends, he descends with one of these two purposes. He's either going to speak or he's going to reveal his glory. But we see something interesting here in Exodus 34. These two purposes collide. As God speaks, he reveals his glory. You notice we don't have any record of what Moses actually saw. But we do have a record of what God said. And as he proclaimed his name, he proclaimed his goodness, he revealed his glory. So God defines himself by his actions. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who comes down. He is a God who is present with his people. And remember, God had just told Moses, I'm going to be with the people. And the next morning, God comes down to be with his people, to reveal himself, to reveal his glory, making good on his promise. But the second way God defines himself is by proclaiming his name. By proclaiming his name. Look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. The first words out of God's mouth are, The Lord, the Lord. And you know from reading Isaiah 6 that when something is repeated in Hebrew, it's there for emphasis. It's similar to like an exclamation point that we would use today to try to emphasize something or to italicize it or all caps or anything. So God is emphasizing his name. And God told Moses earlier that he would proclaim his name, the Lord. So this is God's personal name. When you see that all caps in the Old Testament, like you see there for the Lord, that's God's name. That's not a title. This is Yahweh. God is Yahweh. But what's in a name? Why would God proclaim his name First, well, God's name stands for all of who he is. To understand God's name is to understand who God is. To understand God's name is to understand his character. It tells us that God is the God of creation and redemption. God is the God who made and saves his people. And not only that, but Yahweh, this is God's covenant name. Earlier in Exodus, we read in Exodus 3, at the burning bush, God said this to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the Lord. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And Moses would have known that that reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was meant to remind him of God's covenant that he made with Abraham, which then passed on to Isaac, which then passed on to Jacob, which God is currently fulfilling to Israel. The Lord is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. In other words, if God makes a promise, he keeps that promise. That's so unlike us, isn't it? We can make a promise, but oftentimes we may not have the power to even fulfill it. Not too long ago, I think I was out with Carson, and as we're prone to do, we're going to try to go to some 
fast food restaurant because I am a great influence on my children. And um, the restaurant we wanted was closed. Well, I made a promise, and I had no power. I did not have the ability to keep it. We never encounter that with God. He's independent. He's sovereign. He makes a promise, and he keeps it. We learn three additional truths about God from his name. He exists. He is. He has been. He always will be. Second, he's a person. He is a person. He relates to his creation. And in a special way, he relates to his people through covenants. Third, we learn that God defines himself. God names himself. His name is a declaration of his independent, self-determining existence. He is Yahweh. He's independently sovereign. He's completely independent and completely sovereign to the extent that no one else could come up to him and say, this is your name. God has no parent. When a baby is born, their, their parents are given the responsibility to pick a name for them. They have the right to do that. But no one, no one, absolutely no one can go up to God and say, this is your name. We don't have that right. We don't have that ability. But God does. He names himself because he is the sovereign, independent, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So God defines himself through his actions, by proclaiming his name. And as we continue to reading, continue reading the text, we see that God defines himself by proclaiming his perfections. By proclaiming his perfections. And remember, as God proclaims his perfections, he does so as the God who is personal. He does so as the God who exists. He does so as the God who is independently sovereign. He does so as the God who makes and keeps covenants. This is what that God is like. So what kind of God is the Lord? Well, first, the Lord is a merciful God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. David wrote in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion or mercy to his children, so the Lord shows compassion or mercy to those who fear him. A father is compassionate, merciful toward his children for many reasons, but one of them is they can't help themselves. Despite what I like to think, my kids can't help themselves. They can't reach something. I'm not as tall as Joey, but I'm taller than them, so I can get it, even if it's standing on a chair. Right, Carson? God shows mercy to those who can't help themselves. You need God's mercy because you can't help yourself. I need God's mercy because I can't help myself. And that is good news because Micah 7, 18 in the King James says, God delighteth in mercy. God delights to be merciful. It brings him joy to be merciful. So God... God is merciful to you. Make this personal, please. God is merciful to you in your desperate and helpless state and condition. But the Lord is also a gracious God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And grace is God's undeserved 
favor. I rightly deserve to be shunned by God. There's nothing within me to merit grace. I deserve his wrath and I deserve his judgment, but God is gracious. And in, in Christ, in Christ, we are given this grace and we are made right with God. I was telling Isabel and Victoria a few weeks ago in discipleship that if we all understood justification better, I think we'd understand God's grace better. And justification is, especially when we look at it from a human standpoint and we understand it, it is, it is it's scandalous. It's not, justification is not just that God looks at me and says, Ben, you're forgiven. It's that God looked at me and said, Ben, you are guilty. You are guilty as all get out. And I declare you not guilty. What? If a human judge did that, we'd cry foul. Injustice. He can't do that. He's guilty. He's got to pay the crime. Ben, you are guilty. But I declare you not guilty because I am gracious in Christ. And I give you his righteousness. And I forgive you. And we are now made right. You now have peace with me. And God is because of Christ, God is gracious to us forever. And God's grace, especially when we see it in justification, man, that brings us such great security. My position with God can never be threatened because of Christ. And as one pastor said, commenting on Romans 8.1, there is no Supreme Court higher than God to reverse his decision of no condemnation. How about that? Isn't it good news then that God is independent and sovereign? Right? Because if he's not, there could be a higher court than God that could reverse that decision. But it's also comforting because when you think you're that court that's higher than God and you can reverse that decision, guess what? No way. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's not how grace works. God is gracious. And the Lord is a patient God. He's slow to anger. Paul writes in Romans 3, 26, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. A forbearance there is patience. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I have to believe that Moses would have immediately understood what God was saying when he said, I'm slow to anger. Think of what Israel just done. We are on the heels of Israel's gross sin of idolatry and spiritual adultery. And God said, I'm going to go with them. I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. I'm going to fulfill my promise. God is patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. When you've committed that same sin again. That sin that you just can't seem to shake. God does not leave you. He does not forsake you. He's patient. He sticks with you. The Lord is patient. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's love is his affection for his people. It is uh, an evidence of his commitment to his people and his love drives his faithfulness. 
He will be faithful to his people because he loves his people. And why does God love his people? Deuteronomy 7 is very helpful. Moses speaking to Israel here, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. So God loves you, Moses says, because he loves you. Israel, God loves you because God loves you. As a Christian, God loves you because he wants to. The independent, the sovereign God of the universe who made you, the God who redeemed you, who makes and keeps covenants, loves you because you're lovely? No, because he wants to. Oh, man, whoa. God God wants to love me? I don't want to love me most of the time. I don't. And God loves me? And it's not only that God loves me, what's the text say? He's abounding. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see that because his steadfast love is kept for thousands, most likely thousands of generations. That's how abounding it is. If you are in Christ, God's love and faithfulness to you is abounding. Another pastor said, God is rich in love and he's a big spender. Oh, good news. God's not a miser with his love. He's not Ebenezer Scrooge. It's abounding. And it always abounds. I think of Paul's words in Ephesians 2, the immeasurable riches. God's love is immeasurable. This word abounding, it reminds me of um, uh, Victoria and Sarah and Meemaw. I got to go visit her a few times. And uh, you could never, and I do mean never, stop eating around Meemaw. Your snack before uh, lunch was a sandwich with about half a pound of meat on it. And then you ate four sandwiches. Always. Are you hungry? You want some more to eat? You want some more to eat? I believe she kept ice cream in a big deep freezer or something like that in the fridge Go get, or in the uh, garage. Go get some ice cream. Keep, keep eating. You need to eat some more. Eat some more. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> your, your, your pant size would expand about two sizes in three days. But that's what abounding reminds me of. That's what God's doing. Have a little more love. Have a little more faithfulness. It's abounding. And we can never get to the point where we're like, I'm full. I've had enough. No, God says, I'm going to keep giving. Have some more of my love. Have some more of my faithfulness. And rest secure in this, that if God could stop loving and being faithful to Jesus, he could stop loving and being faithful to you. Christ is the apple of God's eye. And in Christ, because of Christ, you are the apple of God's eye. Not apart from Christ, not because of anything you've done. And another reason God can never stop loving you is that when we look at things from an eternity past standpoint, God never really started loving you. Think about that. In God's heart and in God's mind, in Christ, He has always loved you. Always. Now you begin to see why it's abounding, do you not? Eternity past, present, eternity future. God can't stop loving you because He never started. God will never stop, can never stop loving Christ. 
Therefore, he can never stop abundantly loving you and being faithful to you. But the Lord is also a forgiving God. Would you notice that God is willing to forgive all kinds of sins? You see what God says there? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity is any turning away from what is right and good. Transgression, that is willful rebellion against his word and the terms of his covenant. Sin is almost a catch-all. Any moral failure. So I ask you, have you turned away from what God has said is right and good? Have you willfully rebelled against God? Have you had any type of moral failure? Guess what? I have good news. God's a forgiving God. God forgives all kinds of sins. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Because he's merciful, gracious, patient, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But while God is forgiving, he's also just. He's also just. He will by no means clear the guilty. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. You just said that in justification, God clears the guilty. You're right. I did. But Christ is not guilty. He's perfect. He's blameless. He took my guilt. I am actually guilty. See the difference? Christ said, here, let me take that. I'll, I'll take that from you. John read it in a prayer meeting, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So no, God doesn't clear the guilty. He is just. And for those who persist in their iniquity and transgression and sin, there will come a day to pay up. For those who do not run to Christ, justice awaits. And it is a holy justice. It is a righteous justice. God will by no means clear the guilty. He will right what is wrong. And what we see as God proclaims his perfections here is that he's revealing his glory. His glory is the sum of who he is. God is glorious, and when we see his perfections on display, we see his glory. And we most clearly see God's glory and his perfections in the face of Christ. The Apostle John tells us that he saw the glory of Jesus, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Then he goes on to tell us that Christ reveals God to us. So if we want to know what God's mercy and grace and patience, his abounding steadfast love, his faithfulness, and even his justice, if we want to know what those look like, look to Jesus. As we read in the Gospels of Jesus on the cross, we, we see God's justice on display. Jesus is satisfying the just demands of God that our sin deserved. We see God's love on display. We see God's grace on display, his mercy, his patience, as Paul tells us in Romans 3. It's this, on the cross, we see this beautiful collision of all of God's perfections on display. And what do we see? Glory. Glory in the face 
of Christ. But what implication does this text have on the fear of God? After all, that's where we began. Well, if we are going to fear God, we must fear God for all of who He is. We do not respond in fear to only one aspect of God's perfections, but the totality of who He is, the completeness of who He is, the sufficiency of who He is. So we do not fear Him just as Creator, but as Creator and Redeemer. Not only do we fear Him as holy and just, but as a loving and gracious God. God-glorifying fear of God is balanced, which means biblical in our understanding of who God is. Let me say that again because that's a mouthful. God-glorifying fear of God is balanced, which means biblical in our understanding of who God is. So who is God? He's Yahweh. He's the God who descends to speak with His people, the God who descends to be with His people, the God who descends to, de to reveal His glory to His people. He is the independently sovereign God who makes and keeps covenants. He is Yahweh who is merciful, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will, who will by no means Clear the guilty. So who is God? Well, he's better than we can imagine. And that's the God we are to fear. This is our God. May we respond like Moses. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. May we worship and fear our great, loving, holy, just, gracious, and merciful God.